Welcome in to News and Views with Tom Lamprecht. The stories you've heard and the ones you need to hear. Call me extreme if I want stable prices, affordable energy. The FBI way overstepped their authority. They took way too many documents. What they took significantly outnumbered what they said was classified. We've got a leader who is trying to divide the nation at this point in time. Your life, your values, your voice. This is News and Views with Tom Lamprecht on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. All right, welcome in. New week. Well, almost sort of a new week, right? It's Tuesday already. Just feels like Monday. Lots to talk about, lots to catch up on. What happened? Yeah, (laughs) we're still trying to figure that out. A federal judge yesterday granted former President Donald Trump's request for the appointment of a special master to review the documents seized by the FBI. Interesting thought. The FBI raided Trump's son, Barron, before they raided Biden's son, Hunter. Just curious. Uh, The Federalist has basically gone through the material, the 24-page document that the the judge Eileen uh, Cannon put out saying that, you know, a, a special master is appropriate. Uh, seven top-line takeaways. One, President Biden was directly involved. In the order granting Trump's request for the appointment of a special master, Cannon began by providing a summary of the background that led to the search Throughout 2021, Trump and the National Archives Records Administration engaged in conversations concerning records from Trump's time in office, the court noted. Those discussions resulted in Trump in January of 2022 transferring 15 boxes from Mar-a-Lago to the uh, National Archives. Uh, The National Archives subsequently informed the Department of Justice that some of those items in the boxes contain markings of classified national security information. Following the archives' outreach to the Justice Department, they notified Trump on April 12th that it intended to provide the 15 boxes to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Trump's attorneys sought a delay in the transfer to assess whether any documents contained privileged material. But then, as Cannon wrote, after obtaining a short delay on May the 10th, the archives informed Trump that it would proceed with providing the FBI access to the records in question as requested by the incumbent president beginning as early as Thursday of May 12, 2022. Uh, the second item that they point out was the timeline of the Trump targeting is suspect. This is, again, from the judge Eileen uh, Cannon. A second significant detail revealed by Monday's order concerns the timeline of events, which the court exposed by providing a clear chronology. On May 10th, 2022, the archivist informed Trump's lawyers that the uh, National Archives will provide the FBI access to the records in question as requested by the incumbent president beginning as early as Thursday, May 12th, and on May 11th, before the DOJ received possession of the 15 boxes from the archives, the DOJ obtained a grand jury subpoena for any and all documents or writings in the custody or control of Donald Trump and all, or the office of Donald Trump. But why would the DOJ seek a grand jury subpoena for any and all documents in the Trump's possession 
bearing classified markings before reviewing the material provided by the archives. And given that the DOJ obtained the subpoena the day after the archives told Trump's lawyer, the incumbent president had requested the archive provide the documents to the FBI, one must ask, did Biden direct the DOJ to obtain the grand jury subpoena? Third item, they point out, not so fast, Joe. Trump's executive privilege can't be so quickly sidestepped. Another important detail from Monday's order concerned the court's handling of Trump's request for a review of the seized material to address issues of executive privilege. In opposing Trump's request for a special master, the Biden administration argued that Trump lacked the right to assert executive privilege against the current executive branch. The court concluded the Biden administration's position arguably overstates the law, noting that the Supreme Court has not ruled out the possibility of a former president overcoming an incumbent president on executive privilege matters. Fourth item they point out, members of the investigative team saw confidential attorney-client documents. And again, even though the special master is going to be appointed uh, it sounds to me like the DOJ has pretty much already reviewed all the documents. They probably have Xeroxed all the documents. They probably memorized all the documents by this point. While the Biden administration had not reviewed, reviewed the seized documents to assess any potential executive privilege concerns, a privilege review team has screened the material to determine if it is protected by the attorney-client privilege. Well, who makes up the review team? I mean, for one second, does anybody really believe that the review team is a, you know, nonpartisan group of people outside of the government? Of course not. It's a part of the DOJ. It's a part of the Biden administration. The court takes a different view on this record, Cannon explained in rejecting the government's argument. The court then stressed that the evidence suggests that the privilege review team's initial screening for potentially privileged material was faulty. The Privilege Review Team's report references at least two instances in which members of the investigative team were exposed to material that was then delivered to the Privilege Review Team. And again, I mean, I don't trust this, quote, Privilege Review Team as far as I can throw them. The DOJ, uh, point number five, the DOJ seized a lot of personal material. Another revelation from Monday's order concerned the amount of personal material the FBI seized. The government's inventory reflects a seizure of approximately 11,000 documents and 1,800 items from the plaintiff's residence. The court wrote of these materials seized. The court said approximately 100 documents contain classified markings, but the FBI also seized some 500 pages of material potentially protected by attorney-client privilege, medical documents, correspondence related to taxes, accounting information, etc. Uh, and again, this is a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. Point number six, FBI suggested that Trump committed a crime by returning a torn-up document to the archives. The sixth revelation came not directly from the court's opinion, but from the government filings referenced in Monday's order, and specifically the DOJ's responses, response brief in opposition to Trump's request for an appointment of a special master. In its response brief, the government wrote that on February the 9th, 2022, the special agent in charge of the archives office of the inspector general made a referral of Trump to the DOJ. The government further explained that the um, archives referral was made on two bases, 
evidence that classified records have been stored at the premises until mid-January 2022, and evidence that certain pages of the presidential records have been torn up related to the second concern. The archives referral included a citation, and they give the citation number. This passage proves Intriguing, it proves intriguing for two reasons. First, it appears the special agent in charge of a criminal referral of the uh, former president because documents Trump had returned to the archivist had been torn up at some point. The reference screams witch hunt, which leads to the second point. The unredacted portions of the search warrant affidavit omit any reference to the torn documents. In other words, there's a lot of double talk. Um, point number seven. Again, this is from the judge, Eileen Cannon. In granting Trump's request for the appointment of a special master, Cannon stressed that the special master would help maintain institutional trust in a case heavily politicized. She further noted that a special master would serve to ensure the integrity of an orderly process amidst swirling allegations of bias and media leaks. Here, the court noted that, quote, when asked about the dissemination to the media of information relative to the contents of the seized records, government's counsel stated that he had no knowledge of any leaks stemming from his team, but candidly acknowledged the unfortunate existence of leaks to the press. Those, quote, unfortunate leaks provide further proof of the politicization of this entire affair. In three weeks' time, Mar-a-Lago had sprung more leaks than have escaped from the special counsel John Durham's team over three years. Bingo. Uh, this, the, the further we get into this, the worse it looks for Joe Biden and the DOJ and Merrick Garland. Uh, in local news... <laughs> For the second time this summer, this this is unbelievable. I mean, lightning strikes twice down in New Bern, the Trent River Bridge, 800 feet from where a semi went over the bridge and crashed below. It happened again today. This was, it looked like some sort of semi-cement truck went through, apparently it was a pouring rain, went through the concrete guardrail, fell some 80 feet, and uh, the truck below, nobody on the ground was hurt. The driver managed to escape from the truck. In other words, he climbed out of the truck himself. Uh, He was taken to uh, ECU Health Medical Center in Greenville. Uh, They're investigating the crash. Uh, The Trent uh, uh, Bridge was, uh, Trent River Bridge was closed temporarily while they put up a temporary guardrail and uh, they'll have to come back and uh, make a permanent repair. But uh, yeah, just last May, same thing happened. I mean, I I, I don't remember this ever happening before and now it happens twice in less than three months. News and Observer, I hate to remind you of this, but I told you this was going to happen. Not that I'm any genius. Anybody that uh, has followed Roy Cooper's legacy realizes this was going to happen. The majority Democrat North Carolina State Board of Elections ruled that a Democrat legislative candidate whose residency was challenged can stay on the ballot. Surprise, surprise, surprise. The state board ruled on Friday during an online meeting to reverse the decision of the Currituck County Board of Elections on appeal Ballot printing has already been delayed for 10 counties in the Senate District 3. Republican candidate Bobby Hainig 
filed an election protest against the Democrat candidate Valerie Jordan, saying she did not live in her district as required. Jordan did not dispute that she spent 23 consecutive nights this summer in the house she owns in Raleigh since 1998. So she's had this house since 98 in Raleigh. She was there pretty much all summer, 23 consecutive days. And uh, like all local boards, Currituck's board is controlled by the party of the governor. In other words, uh, the governor is a Democrat, so every county board and the state board is majority Democrat. The local board, however, ruled even though there was a majority of Democrats, the local board had one Democrat come over and vote with the Republicans and uh, basically said, no, we don't think uh, Jordan does live in the Senate 3 district, and uh, they ruled against her. It, had that ruling stood, they would have removed uh, Valerie Jordan from the ballot. Jordan appealed to the State Board of Elections. Uh, but by the way, one of the morals of the story is not all Democrats are uh, lacking integrity. This one Democrat who voted with the Republicans indeed looked at the evidence and said, "What well, the evidence is overwhelming. Hainig was just sworn in on Monday as a state senator to fill a vacant seat in which he resi- uh, for which he resigned his House seat. Hainig said on Friday the board's decision was predetermined 100%, and once again the State Board of Elections has shown 100% its partisanship. And we saw this during the last election, during the last general election, when the state board decided, controlled by Democrats, when you had um, them decide that we're going to change the rules after the election has started because Democrats in control decided that would be a good thing. Hanig said Jordan did not dispute her 23 days spent in Raleigh because she couldn't. She continued to live in Raleigh. By the way, the home that she says is her residence in Warrington is owned by her parents. The things that we found in her testimony can, uh, continuing to contradict herself will help in the campaign as well. Just one contradiction after another, Hanig said. In an email statement, Jordan said on Friday she was grateful that the state board affirmed her residency in Warren County and called Hainick's protest political theater. Jordan's lawyer, John Wallace, argued that Jordan, listen to this, her lawyer, John Wallace, argued that Jordan showed the intent of moving her domicile and residence from her house in Raleigh to her house in Warrington, citing clothes, photographs, and a bedroom set had been moved. Well, when she filed to run for office, she needs to say she, she is a resident. I mean, you, you need to, to sign a, a document indicating that you are currently a resident. By her attorney's own admission, she wasn't a resident. The intent of moving, the intent of changing your domicile doesn't mean you've changed it. It means you intend to change it. I mean, that's, that's the whole point. Thank you, Mr. Attorney, for basically <laughs> making Hainig's point. Hainig's lawyer, Greg Sauer, argued that Jordan still had an Amazon uh, had Amazon packages delivered, property taxes uh, and tax bills, uh, banking mail, all sent to her house in Raleigh. Other evidence included photographs of her two cars parked in front of a Raleigh house. Basically, the state board said, that eh, doesn't matter. Wallace said they weren't denying that Jordan spent time at a Raleigh house and that she was there caring for her grandson. 
So she's there caring for her grandson. All her documents, and, and again, she admits that. All her documents, her packages, her taxes, her banking, all is sent to her house in Raleigh. But her domicile, she says, is Warren, Warrington. Shower argued that there was substantial evidence Jordan never abandoned her Raleigh residence. He also argued that the appeal should not have been heard all because of a deadline, but the state board decided that the appeal could be heard. Governor Cooper is a Democrat, so Democrats have a majority on the five-member state board. And uh, sorry to say this. Well, not sorry. I'll, I'll say it glibly. <laughs> I told you so. All right, but I, again, I'm no genius. Anybody that has seen what Governor Cooper does, what Democrats do all over the country. It's, it's a, I mean, and, and by the way, speaking of which, and, and I mean, again, this is just, and people say, oh, there was no problem with the elections. I mean, this is just more and more evidence just keeps piling up about how corrupt it is. Our buddy Hans von Spakowski, who was a former member of the Federal Board of Elections, and th- here another gr- great example of a 2020 fraudulent election. Hans writes, if a politician from Florida decides to run for president in 2024, his or her home state will be short two votes in the Electoral College. And when the new session of the U.S. House of Representatives convenes in January 23, Florida will be missing two congressional seats, which is entitled to. According to a post-2020 census survey, And this was an intense survey, by the way. The U.S. Census Bureau significantly undercounted the population of Florida, as well as Arkansas, Illinois, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Texas, at the same time it overcounted the population of eight states, all but one of which is a blue state. So they undercounted five red states. They overcounted eight blue states. At the beginning of the current this current session of the of Congress, at the beginning, there were 214 Republicans and 221 Democrats. Change four races. And again, five rates, five Republican states were undercounted. Eight blue states were overcounted. Change four elections because of congressional realignment via properly counted census. Theoretically, I mean, this could have happened. Would it happen? I can't say for sure, but this could have happened. Republicans would have had 218 seats in the House. Democrats would have 217. Things such as the Bogus Inflation Reduction Act does not become law. The 2020 errors were discovered when the Census Bureau interviewed a large number of households across the country and compared the answers it got to the original census responses in 2020. In addition to undercounting six states, the survey showed that the Bureau overcounted populations in Delaware, Hawaii, Massachusetts, Minnesota, New York, Ohio, Rhode Island, and Utah. Only Ohio and Utah would be toss-up states. The rest are clearly blue states, Democrat states. Isn't it interesting? The census made its larger, largest overcount percentage era in Joe Biden's state. Biggest era of any of them. The tiniest state. You'd think Delaware is one of the tiniest states in the nation. You'd think they could get that one right. 
right? Delaware was overcounted by 5.45%. Rhode Island and Minnesota were also overcounted by over 5%. Minnesota, according to the original census report, would have lost a congressional seat if it had just had 26 fewer residents. So in other words, where they were in 2010 compared to 2020, had they just lost 26 fewer residents, they would have lost a congressional seat. According to the survey, the Census Bureau overcounted Minnesota by 216,971 people. Rhode Island would have lost a seat if the Census Bureau had counted 1,900 fewer residents. It turned out that state was overcounted by 55,000. Both states will continue to have more representation in Congress. I mean, I mean, the, the numbers are, are, are staggering about how, in, well, I'd like to say it was incompetence. Unfortunately, it's not incompetence. I mean, when you have this kind of thing happen over and over, I mean, you can look at the state board of elections in Raleigh and say, well, you know, that was just a bad judgment call. Maybe they should have looked deeper into it. I mean, one Republican uh, on the state board said, hey, let's send it back to Currituck County and get them to re-examine. No, 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 no. Now, we can decide, we can look at the evidence, and we know that Valerie Jordan is a legitimate resident of Warren County. And again, Hans von Spakowski points out what you could, uh, what, what the Democrats would say, oh, we're sorry. Oh, we made a mistake. Oh, our bad. No, no, it's not your bad. It's your deliberate action to, to make sure that the Democrat, I mean, they got to cheat. Pure and simple, they got to cheat. And you cannot convince me otherwise. You can say I got my head in the sand, whatever. If you're believing that this was an honest mistake, go out and buy the Brooklyn Bridge. We got to take a timeout. Stay with us. We'll be right back. No need to search for the facts. The fact is, it's, um, well, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, hold on. Let's see, they, uh, they gave me... Uh, Just take note. Okay. It's uh, one pound of ground beef, one egg. What is this? That's a recipe for, uh, for meatloaf someone gave me. That's not... And check in throughout the day here. Look. Uh, no, seriously. Look around. Did anybody see a piece of paper with my notes on it? For what's next, travel with us on Talk 96.3 and 103.7 with Tom Lamprecht. All right, welcome back in. It is Tuesday, September the 6th. Taking a quick look at your weather forecast. A few clouds tonight and a chance of a rain shower. Uh, it's probably raining somewhere in our listening area as we speak. Some big thunderclouds out there this afternoon. A low tonight is 70 degrees. Tomorrow, scattered showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon. A high of 87. It is cooling down. Tomorrow night, a considerable cloudiness. A stray shower or thunderstorm is possible with a low of 67. Thursday, again, stray shower or thunderstorm is possible with a high only of 82. So although uh, up on the TV screen it says 85, what you handed me to hear, <laughs> Clark says 82. Anyway, uh, Thursday night, mostly cloudy with a low of around 63. Weather brought to you by our friends at the Ironwood Golf and Country Club. Whether you're looking to spend your fall courtside or greenside, Ironwood Golf and Country Club 
offers a variety of memberships tailored to fit your lifestyle with no initiation fee required. Remember, if you're headed to the beach, pack your clubs because Ironwood members receive reciprocal golf and dining privileges at the Beaufort Club in Beaufort and Compass Point Golf Club and Magnolia Greens located near Wilmington. Contact membership director Jenna Doyle. Her number is 252-752-4653. And join in the fun at Ironwood today, a part of the Renaissance Golf Group. Uh, Another story out today in the News and Observer, court records released today reveal that Senator Richard Burr avoided an estimated $87,000 in losses and gained more than $164,000, that's uh, well over a quarter million dollars, due to his, quote, well-timed stock sales at the beginning of COVID-19. Now, we've talked about this before. Remember, Uh, Richard Burr told us and acted like, why wouldn't you believe me, that uh, all his information was from Jim Cramer on CNBC. New information about the now-closed insider trading investigation into Richard Burr and his family came to light Tuesday after a judge ordered the release of federal materials. They're related to a search warrant that allowed investigators to see and search Burr's cell phone. The Los Angeles Times first asked the Justice Department uh, to release the information after, in May 2020, Burr sold more than $1.6 million in stocks at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. The court documents revealed that investigators believe Burr, his brother-in-law, and sister-in-law may have sold off stocks based on non-public information Burr received in February of 2020 as the pandemic was rising in the United States. While the Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission have both investigated Burr and his family, they have not filed any charges. The Justice Department probe, which produced the newly redacted document, is completed. The version of the search warrant materials made public today includes some information that previously was redacted, gives more insight to what caused investigators to look into the decisions Burr made about his stocks. Burr sold nearly all of and nearly all of his and around 61% of his wife's stocks on January 31st and February 13th. And if you remember, that was really before the COVID information made headlines day in and day out, and before the lockdowns occurred. I mean, this is this is the very beginning of COVID. He knew stuff that the rest of us didn't, and he dumped his stocks. Um, which is illegal if you do it on inside information. But Richard Burr didn't do it on inside information. He did it on the re- recommendations of Jim Cramer. I'm just curious that I don't remember Jim Cramer ever saying anything about that. How did Jim Cramer know about uh, the COVID coming crisis? Uh, you know, frankly, though, this raises more questions than it answers. Are we still supposed to believe, as Burr said months ago, how he came to the realization that he needed to sell basically all of his $6.1 million worth of stock. He must be a real good crystal ball gazer is all I can say. Uh, Pittsburgh Gazette, the Post-Gazette, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, basically has come out And again, this is a typical liberal publication. They have come out and basically said, I 
don't think this uh, John Fetterman, who is the current Democrat candidate against Oz, Dr. Oz, for the U.S. Senate, he is also currently the lieutenant governor, uh, they're basically questioning, can he actually serve as a U.S. senator? There, it, It's obvious they said he has an auditory processing and speech issue. Um, basically, right now, he says he's not going to debate, which, you know, yeah, if I was advising the guy, I would say you don't debate. Uh, any public debate would just highlight how impaired he is. And I'm sorry, the guy is... I mean, he looks like a combination of uh, Lurch and Uncle Fester, but um, off the Adams family. But you know, I'm sorry the guy had a stroke. But is is that who you want to be serving as uh, your U.S. senator if you're from the state of uh, Pennsylvania? And so today, the Post Gazette actually came out and said, eh, "We don't think this is a good idea." White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre doubled down on President Joe Biden's attacks on MAGA by saying they are apolitical during a Friday briefing. A reporter questioned the press secretary and why the president held a politically charged speech funded by taxpayer dollars with two Marines visibly standing several feet behind him. Jean-Pierre said the president's message defended democracy. Quote, the way we see it here... And I would argue that many Americans across the country see it is that standing up for democracy is not political. Denouncing political violence is not political. Defending rights and freedoms is not political, Jean-Pierre said. Making clear that the challenges facing the nation is not political. We don't call any of that political. We see that as leadership and we see that as presidential. You know what's interesting about those comments? And uh, by the way, remember uh, one of his, I mean, basically the theme he repeated over and over again, and this is a quote from the speech, MAGA forces are determined to take this country backwards, backwards to an America where there is no right to choose, no right to privacy, no right to contraception, no right to marry whom you love. Uh, He called us, we MAGA people who want to make America great again, uh, fascist. What's interesting about this is that two op-eds that came out over the weekend, one came out this morning, one by Scott Street in The Federalist. And what's interesting about Scott Street's uh, op-ed is Scott Street is a Democrat lawyer and a consultant in Los Angeles. Uh, He writes often, does columns often. He actually worked for Joe Biden. He voted for Joe Biden. He has admired the Joe Biden of the past. However, he writes in this op-ed that just came out today, this is not what Joe Biden promised to deliver during his 2020 campaign or his inaugural address, and voters have noticed. He goes on and says, writing a poor speech is one thing. Delivering it in front of a Nuremberg-style backdrop is quite another The imagery shocked many people. It should have shocked everybody. It took just a few minutes for the Babylon Bee to draw comparisons between Biden's speech and Nazi Germany. And while most Nazi comparisons are exaggerated, these ones struck a little too close to home. After all, 
while the president warns about fascism or semi-fascism or whatever that is in America, his administration is the one censoring people who disagree with it and trying to prosecute its political opponents with both flagrant violations of democratic norms. His administration is the one that, while claiming to crack down on big tech, works with it to punish dissenting voices and stifle debate. His administration is the one that attacks its critics as terrorists and which compares speech to violence. His administration is the one that felt bold enough to create a disinformation board within the Department of Homeland Security, an Orwellian concept that the world has not seen on such a large scale since those 1930 regimes that Biden says he hates. Uh, Henry Olson, who writes for the Washington Post, which is clearly a, I mean, left-leaning is an understatement publication. He has come out and said, listen, Biden's MAGA speech was designed to protect Democrats, not democracy. And quite frankly, all the memes that you see about Joe Biden being compared to Adolf Hitler. Now, I, I know in most cases people say, oh, you know, Hitler, that's an extreme, that's a, a real extreme. Listen, Adolf Hitler's whole modus operandi was to blame the issues that were facing Germany on the Jews, to select a people, brand them as the trouble, and we'll just, we'll just place all the blame on them. That is exactly what Joe Biden is doing when he tries to blame all the problems of the world on people that voted for Trump and Donald Trump himself. And by the way, he gave this speech on Thursday. On Friday, he backtracked and says, well, I'm not calling all people that voted for Trump fascist. Yesterday, he delivered another speech on Labor Day. He went back to the same rhetoric he delivered on Thursday. Unbelievable. we got to take a timeout. We'll be right back. This is your Drive at 5 and ENC with Tom Lamprecht. Welcome back to News and Views on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. You know, one of the reasons why Joe Biden might have given that speech, well, I think it's the primary reason, is he knows he's going to get shellacked and uh, they're grasping at straws. I mean, they are flailing trying to figure out what can I hold on to that we don't get annihilated. You're going to get annihilated. And the reason why I say that with more confidence, and again, you know, it, it, the, the election season, we're, we're post-Labor Day. It's going to go full throttle. You're going to start hearing ads. You're going to start hearing interviews in our program with people running for election, in some cases for hoping to be reelected. Zogby has got a new poll out, and it is not good news for Joe Biden, and it is not good news for Joe Biden concerning his base. It's not just the, uh, I'm not really decided, am I going to vote Republican, am I going to vote Democrat, although I don't know how those people exist. You'd think you'd be one or the other. His base, which is compromised of a lot of minority voters. Now, granted, I'm not saying that the majority of the minority voters are going to come out and vote for conservative candidates. Some will. I'm not saying a majority will. But there is a significant number in these minority bases that will either not vote or will vote for an alternative. And it doesn't matter. I mean, you just take 10 or 15% of these mi this minority Democrat block away, and they're in trouble. In a series of new Zogby polls from last week, support for uh, a tree from a trio of groups, uh, blacks, Hispanics, and Asians, which make up the traditional Democrat base, is far from what is needed to win big this fall. 
It's hard to see where this is a good scenario for Biden, said Zogby. His support is lagging among a big part of his base. Among blacks, Biden has an approval rating of just 57.5%. This is a disapproval rating of 32.3%. Zogby said the presidential approval is down 17 points from his last survey in this category. In May of 2022, our poll had the president at 75% approval, 25 disapproval amongst African-Americans of likely voters. Again, these are likely voters of these minority groups. Biden's numbers have been even higher with African-Americans, said, said Zogby, of a surprising crash of support for Biden amongst blacks. He blamed the fall on the economy and a belief among 52% of African-Americans that the country is on the wrong track. With Hispanics, Biden's support is down 13 points this year to just 49.4%, 40.2% disapproval, 10% unsure. This is a huge dec decrease from his approval rating in January of 62%. So that, that's down 13 percentage points um, since January. Amongst his support from Asians, it's split 46% approval, 46% disapproval. Uh, what's... Uh, interesting about this is when they were asked, when these minority groups were asked, uh, who would you want to see as the candidate in the upcoming presidential primary? Joe Biden, 35%, Michelle Obama, 21%. This is of uh, African Americans. Kamala Harris, 12.5%. Bernie Sanders, 7%. Stacey Abrams, 6%. Jill Biden, 4.9. Elizabeth Warren, 2.8. Gavin Newsom, 2.6. Um, amongst Hispanics, Joe Biden, 35%. Michelle Obama, 15%. Bernie Sanders, 14%. Kamala Harris, 11%. Jill Biden, 5%. Gavin Newsom, 6%. Uh, 6%. Asians, Biden, 28%. Sanders, 12%. Michelle Obama, 12%. Harris, 11.2. Interestingly, a president whose party is in power gives up control of the House and or the Senate during their first midterm. Election is out there telling his supporters the midterm election is the soul of the nation. Uh, apparently, they're not buying any soul music, Joe, because uh, your numbers are uh, in the tank. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Back to News and Views. Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Speaking of polling, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who many people are saying uh, they hope he will be on the presidential ticket in the uh, Republican uh, election in 2024 uh, he has a landslide lead over the uh, democrat charlie christ former democrat the orangeman in a new survey desantis leads christ the former democrat governor and house member 50 percent to 41 percent uh, that is a landslide folks if that holds up on election day that is a landslide the governor and the national leader against corporate America's woke agenda also leads by 24 points among men and conservatives in the state, where conservatives outnumber liberals nearly three to one. DeSantis also holds a solid lead among Hispanics and especially Cuban-Americans, according to pollster Rick Shafton of the Neighborhood Research and Media. The governor led 50 to 42 percent among the 94 percent of respondents surveyed in English 
and a 6% lead in those who were surveyed in Spanish. DeSantis, DeSantis also dominates the race for donations ahead of Christ in every group except Democrats and those who put abortion rights at the top of their list. However, only 2% of Florida voters put abortion at the top of the list. Most Florida voters are putting the economy and education at the top issue. And uh, in that, um, DeSantis is in great shape. So maybe this is a, a, a telling what uh, the upcoming midterms will do in terms of who will control the House. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi apparently has developed contingency plans should the 2022 midterms go sideways for Democrats. I ain't going to go sideways. They're going go to go I will do anything. <laughs> well, apparently what she will now do is uh, – she wants to leave the house. So if she can't be in charge, she don't want to be there. And uh, she is hoping, and Biden will do this. They do not currently have an ambassador to, an ambassador to Italy. Pelosi wants to be the next Italian ambassador. She likes the wine, I guess. Good Italian wine. All, all, all you can drink. So uh, apparently Nancy is, uh, that's her contingency plan. That if uh, she can't be speaker, she'll quit, resign. And I guess they'll have to have a special election. I'm not sure exactly how California does it. But in most states, since it's the people's house, uh, it would require a special election. Interesting story out of Fox News. A California man decided to reach across the political aisle and strike up conversations with Trump supporters at a recent rally in Tennessee. He had the goal of making 100 new friends. Grow up in L.A., you think that these events are going to be, like, very aggressive, the gentleman said, whose last name is Donor. I was absolutely baffled that people wanted to talk and would actually be friends with me. The viral video highlights from various conversations and interaction with Trump supporters, many of whom agreed to be friends. Donner said in the video, these interactions changed how he feels and views America and challenged his prior notions about Trump supporters. The California teen also acknowledged that despite heightened political tensions, people have more in common than they're led to believe. Donner said that he thought initially that no one at the Trump rally would want to talk to him. He said, I was overblown. I was overwhelmed. Hey, thanks for being with us. We'll do it again tomorrow at 5. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.